As the first female Black and Asian Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris is redefining the political sphere. For countless women, her achievement represents hope, affirmation, and the shattering of a glass ceiling that has kept mostly white men at the high ranks of American politics. From Wonder Media Network, host Jenny Kaplan explores Vice President Kamala Harris's historic path to the White House, from her journey as district attorney to California Attorney General, to Senator, and finally, Vice President. In this mini-series, Jenny is speaking exclusively with women experts and elected officials to discuss how Kamala Harris's win disrupts the status quo and what this could mean for the future of women in politics. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, it's Reshba. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from perfection to live bolder, braver, and happier lives. Today on the show, we're talking about facing our fears, getting out of our comfort zone, and doing the things that scare us in a good way. It's a great way to exercise your bravery muscle. And there are so many ways to do this, even when we're staying away from each other as much as possible and trying to curb the spread of COVID. You might try a new recipe or a hobby you're worried you won't be great at right away. You might ride a bike for the first time in 10 years or go to the park and try to do a cartwheel. Maybe sing some karaoke with your family or do a home improvement project. Or maybe now just isn't the right time to push yourself. And that's okay too. There's bravery in getting rest, caring for yourself and knowing your limits. Here to talk about facing your fears in the show is someone I am so excited to introduce to you, Michelle Polaire. Michelle used to live with a lot of fear. She was scared of big playful dogs and missed dinner parties because she didn't want to drive at night. She realized her fears were getting in the way of living her life and she wanted to change that. So she decided to take on a hundred of her fears in as many days and chronicle all of it on YouTube. Since then, she started her own company called Hello Fears to encourage others to get out of their comfort zone. And last year, Michelle came out with an amazing book called Hello Fears, Crush Your Comfort Zone and Become Who You're Meant to Be. Michelle's got a lot to offer when it comes to understanding our fears and overcoming them. And I hope you learned something from our conversation today, because I certainly did. So, Michelle, I wanted to start by asking you about your new book. Um, I have it right here in my hand. Hello, Fears, Crush Your Comfort Zone and Become Who You're Meant to Be. Tell me what it's about and like, why would you write it? And what do you want our listeners to know? Well, I've been speaking about the subject of overcoming your fear, getting outside of your comfort zone and questioning life more, questioning what you want to do and then having the courage to actually go and pursue those dreams. So I've been speaking about that for the last four years and I just realized it was time for more people to hear these concepts, to hear these messages and put them into practice because when I get invited to speak at a company or at an event, I only get to speak to a group of people, right, that are lucky to be there that day and that I can share my message with them. But I wanted to democratize, I guess, all of these thoughts so more people, because my 
purpose in life is to make the world a braver place. And I guess mm. this is the best way to do it. So I was reading, um, and I really related to, you know, my family came here as refugees and so many of your family went through the Holocaust. And so do you feel like kind of the, your obsession with fear, right? Or your passion for bravery comes a bit from what your family went through? I now realize that it's just like that because when I started facing my fears and I started with a project called 100 Days Without Fear where I decided to face 100 fears in 100 days and that was in 2015 when I moved to New York to do a master's in branding at the School of Visual Arts and at that point I only wanted to face my fears because I realized that they were limiting my potential and my opportunities and so I was like this is the time I was 26 years old at the time so I was like this is the time for me to go after my fears um, and become a braver person, not only for myself, but also for my family and for my future kids. Because we were, me and my husband, we were already thinking about starting a family. And then when I started facing my fears and I started understanding really where fear comes from, uh, what about fear was limiting me in particular and how it was affecting other people around me. That's when I started to really get deep into fear and I started looking into my past and I realized that my fears didn't start when I was born. They started way before that, when my grandparents went through the Holocaust because they had to endure that. They then started from scratch in Venezuela, which was like a country very far away from where they were, you know, they were in Romania, in Poland, and suddenly they're in Venezuela, in Latin America, having to start from scratch. And it's not really starting from scratch because their fears never went away. They carried them with them. And then they raised my mom with all those fears. And then that's the same way that she raised me. Mm. So what were some of those fears? So I grew up with... I think one of the main fears in my life was fear of being by myself. So loneliness. Um, turns out that when I was little, I needed glasses. And for the first seven years of my life, my parents didn't know that. So I had a huge fear of getting lost, <laughs> really. So, And we didn't know that was a problem. And I was like considered a very shy kid because I was always next to my parents. Mm. And then they realized, oh, she just needed glasses. But I think that set up the tone for my entire life. And then also living with my mom and my grandma, who were very negative, uh, always thinking that the worst can happen. And I don't really blame them because yeah. for my grandparents, it did. The worst did happen. So I just grew up with that thought in my mind always. That's so powerful. It's so true. Like in my house, I could never sleep over at anybody's houses. Like they were just so afraid that something was going to happen. And I also had grew up in a very kind of a risk averse family. And so it was always like, keep to yourself, stay inside, don't do anything risky, don't engage in risky behavior. You know, and for them, risky behavior was like doing, you know, a gymnastics class, right? <laughs> anything that you can actually get hurt. Um, yeah. But it is it is really powerful about the way you were raised and how that, how that affects you. Uh, one of the things I love you say in your book is that, you say that, you know, instead of asking yourself, what's the worst that can happen, ask yourself, what's the best that can happen? And so it's this mindset shift. 
you know, when was the time that this mindset changed your perspective on something that you were scared to do? Well, it was actually a reaction to my mom's negative, like, I don't know, rants. One day we were on the phone and she was like, oh no, we have a dinner tonight. What if people don't come? What if the food doesn't come in time? What if they're not hungry? What if, and she started just going on and on about all this negative case scenarios that might happen. And I listened to her for like 30 minutes. And then at one point I'm like, mom, what if they do come? What if they are hungry? What if they love the food? What if the food is ready on time? What if everything goes amazing, like even better than expected? And then tomorrow you call me, you tell me that, oh, Michelle, you were right. Everything went great. And then she was like quiet for a second. And she's like, huh, That's true. And then I'm like, we have to switch the question around from what's the worst that can happen to what's the best that can happen. And also that question, what's the worst that can happen? It's actually a question that people use to encourage other people to take a risk, right? They have good intentions when they use that question. So they are like, go for it. Think about it. What's the worst that could happen? And I got that question a lot during my 100 day project because every day I was facing a different fear. And that question never helped. And it was then that I realized why the question is not helping. Because when you ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen? You only focus on the worst case scenarios. So you think of the risk and that is never going to be helpful if you actually want to gather courage to face a fear. So you actually need to focus on the rewards in order to take action. And then I started doing some research and it's actually a real science-based concept by Jeffrey Gray. He says that we have the behavioral activation system and the behavioral inhibition system. So the behavioral inhibition system reacts to risk and stop us from taking action. And the behavioral activation system is what help us take action, right? And the only thing that triggers is, is rewards. So when we ask ourselves, what's the best that can happen? And we start thinking of all the possible rewards. That's when we're encouraged to take any risk. So you've mentioned this 100-day challenge a few times. And from what I understand, is like you realize that fear is holding you back and you challenge yourself to take 100 days of like letting go of your fear. During those 100 days, what were some of the scariest challenges you faced? Oh, that's such a hard question because for me, they were also scary. But of course, I started with some fears that were less scary for me. For example, to try new foods, like trying an oyster, which is something I avoided for my entire life. And I was like, this is a time to try it. And it took me like 30 minutes to put that oyster in my mouth. And then I spit it out a couple of times and until I was able to do it. So it sounds silly, but it was actually scary for me at that time. And then little by little, I started increasing the level of fear uh, into the challenges that I was doing. And so eventually I was holding a tarantula, holding a snake, doing skydiving. Oh I quit my job in advertising, which was a huge fear. I did stand-up comedy, which for some reason was very scary. Um, And even post nude in front of a drawing class. What? Wow. (laughs) Wow. That was one of the scariest. (laughs) 
you know, you also did talk about like these seven core fears. Tell me what they are. And then I want to talk about whether your challenges were related to these fears that you had. So what I did is my last fear, number 100, was to speak at TEDx. And I wanted to do a really good job. So I was like, what can I share? So I can't just go up there and share that I faced 100 fears. You know, I need to go deeper. Uh, how can I understand fear? And so I started to find parallels and patterns between my fears. So I put all of my fears into post-its and then I started to put them together in clusters. And I was like, hmm, fear of getting a Brazilian wax and getting a piercing kind of felt the same. Like it was a very similar experience. And then dancing in the middle of Times Square and posing nude had something similar to it. So I started putting those together until I ended up with seven different clusters and I had to find a name for each one. And what I realized is that I didn't have 100 fears like I thought. I had seven fears, but there were thousands of ways to face those fears. And so the seven core fears are loneliness, control, danger, embarrassment, rejection, disgust, and pain. And the interesting thing is that I started realizing, talking with other people, that some people are more afraid of some of these fears than others. So in my book, I ask people to rank them. And so I ask them to, you know, in order from one to seven, what are the fears that you're more scared of? And it's so personal at the end of the day. So for me, the fears in that list that scared me the most are loneliness control and pain, while some people would rather face those anytime before having to face something related to rejection or embarrassment. So interesting. So you talk about how you, you know, you realize that you were more fearful than other women before you began this journey. You know, why do you think that that's the case? Yeah, uh, I think it happened when I left Venezuela. So living in my home, fear was normal. Like just saying I'm afraid of something was okay. My mom used to say it all the time and I just followed her lead. And I realized that when you say that people don't bother you anymore. They're like, oh, okay, don't worry. You're afraid. That's it. Oh, wow. Um, nowhere, nobody was really pushing me or encouraging me to be brave. On the other hand, like I was telling you, my mom was fearful, but my dad, it was not that he was brave. He was fearless. So it's hard to like relate to someone that is fearless. So my dad would always go on roller coasters and trips and do all the things that I'm scared of doing, but he would not understand my fear. So I couldn't really relate to him and feel inspired by him. I believe that it is not that inspiring to be fearless and it's more inspiring to be brave because fearless means that there is a lack of fear. And so it's hard to relate to that and feel inspired by it. I feel inspired when I know that someone is scared and they're still doing something. That is what brave is all about. And so I think I was missing that. I had a fearful mom and a fearless dad, but I didn't have like a brave or courageous leader growing up. And that's what I want to be for so many young women today. That's why I care so much about the book and speaking mostly to the younger generation. Yeah, I mean, I love that because you kind of have the same perspective that I do that bravery is like a muscle that you can build. Like your mother can learn how to be more brave. She's not, quote, fearless, right? She's going to do something, but she's still afraid to do it. But she'll try it anyway. Have you changed her behavior? 
Oh my God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at first, she was not the biggest supporter when I started my project is, of course, fear, right? She was like, no, what if something happens to you? Maybe this is not a good idea that you face 100 fears. And I'm like, um, okay, I'm my own person now. So I'm going to make this choice for myself. I'm going to face 100 fears and see where that takes me. And um, she, she had no choice but to support at the end of the day. And I started to inspire her. So little by little, she started to implement what I was sharing with her and all of these concepts into her life. And she started to feel so proud of herself. So every time she would do something a little bit courageous, like for example, um, returning something at a restaurant, right? Something that for some people is so common and like obvious, if there's something wrong with your food, you just return it. For my mom would be like, no, kill me first. Like I'm no way return. Like, <laughs> well, for some people that's really scary. So if she did it, then she would call me right away and tell me the story and she felt so proud. Oh, that's amazing. So was she kind of like your first client in the sense of like, you've built this community and you make videos of yourself facing your fears, you know, was she the first person who taught you like, wow, like my courage can actually activate other people's courage? Um, no, I think that I started realizing that courage is contagious when I started to put this project online. And I started to receive messages from people that I haven't spoken to in years. And they were saying, I've been following your project and you actually inspired me to ask for a raise at my job, things like that. And I'm like, really? This is inspiring? Because at the beginning, when I started, my only followers were the people I've met in my life because I didn't have a community or anything. And they started to reach out and it's people that I've never expected them to reach out. So that was pretty cool. And then that's when I realized there was something here, something powerful. My mom, I think, was at the end, you know. At the end of it. Yeah. Oftentimes, my parents are like the last, you know, adopter of like, um, <laughs> once everybody's accepted. So that's so interesting. So exactly, you've um, built a lot of your work around public speaking and motivating others. How has the pandemic affected this part of your life? It affected 100% of it because my full-time job at this point was to travel and speak in front of thousands of people. I already had conferences for 30,000 people, which is insane. It's the most that I've done. And I was so looking forward to all of those events. And suddenly in March, they start canceling all of my March events, April events. And very quickly, we realized that this was sort of the end for this time of what we were experiencing. Like we were so comfortable already uh, with our business of speaking and we were loving it. And I say we, cause it's me and my husband. So we work together. We yeah. travel everywhere together. We've never done an event that I've been by myself. So yeah, we both quit our jobs. He quit his job in finance. I quit my job in advertising to do this full time. And we were having a blast doing it. It, it was like my perfect life suddenly stopped. So it was really hard at the beginning. And I gave myself one week to feel sorry for myself and cry all I needed to cry. And then um, I said, okay, now I need to be an action leader now, not only a thought leader and put nice thoughts out there and, you know, for people to change their mindset, but also I need to take action. I need to lead by action right now. So the first thing I did is I organized an online conference. Uh, and this was still in March. So it was pretty recent. And I decided to do it and open it up for my entire community. And we sold about 500 tickets. So I gave my, my full talk to people all over the world, which 
was amazing because it made me realize that, yeah, this seems like a negative thing that is happening, but at the same time, I'm able to reach people all over the world thanks to these initiatives. And so that's where it started. And then clients started to hear about it and they started to hire me for their events and do them virtually. And now instead of having 5,000 people that were going to be there in person, they have 30 to 40,000 people. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, it's, listen, I think a lot of people are having to adapt at this moment and pivot and shift and you know put their dreams on hold. And so I think you're setting a great example for your community that even you're doing it, right? And you're having to be brave about this moment and to change. Yeah, and it's been hard. It's been so hard. So I even if I'm crying, I show that. I share it with my community. I don't want them to think that I'm happy all the time. I'm optimistic all the time. I mean, I try, but I'm also human and I can't help it. I'm so sad that that's not happening and will not happen in the next who knows how long. Yeah. So you talked about moving to Florida. That was a big move for you. Tell me a bit about that. That, I think, was one of the hardest decisions that I've done in the last years because I moved to New York in 2014 full of dreams and expectations. And all of those dreams and expectations uh, were met and even surpassed. Like, New York means everything to me. It's where I discovered my true self. It's where I allowed my authentic self to come into the world and and exist. I don't know. It was like a full revelation and I just knew it. I knew that I had to be there. And so I moved, everything happened. I did this project. I went viral. I started my career. I started living my dream. And then this year in January, we made the decision to leave New York because we want to start a family. And we realized that it was going to be really hard with all the traveling because I want to still continue speaking and traveling and I want to continue doing that with Adam, my husband. And so if we stay in New York, we don't have no one in New York. I mean, we have a few friends, but we don't have really have a community. We don't have family or support. And so it was going to be really hard. So we had to give that up. And the way that we make choices is that we ask ourselves, what's the comfortable decision and what's the growth decision? And usually the growth choice is the hardest to make. It's the one that scares you the most. And at this point in my life, moving to Miami, leaving New York, starting a family is the choice that scares the heck out of us. And so we understood that that is now our growth choice, even though it's so uncomfortable, but that's the point. And so it's okay. It's okay if we have to make changes and adjustments if we have to, if we want to pursue our dreams. And that is a dream that we have. So now is the time to go for it, but still so scary because we're so used to just being the two of us and being so free, right? We are in full control of our life. We decide when to wake up, when to travel, when to eat, what to eat, where to live, everything. And now suddenly to invite someone else into our life feels very scary, but at the same time, exciting. It's true. I have two kids and I will say, you know, the way that we've raised them is like they adapt to our lives, Mm -hmm. right? I think when children, you feel limited by them, it's like, I got to leave now because they have to go to nap time or I have to go do this or we had to revolve all of our social life around the, the activities that they're in. And, you know, I'm raising my kids in the way that I was raised, which is essentially we just kind of rolled with our parents. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like whatever they wanted to do or whatever they were doing. And, you know, with my son, Sean, I mean, 
he came to every speech. You know, when I went on Trevor Noah, the daily show, he's there in the green Aww. room with me, like throwing M&Ms at Trevor. And, you know, he's sitting there when I'm giving my commencement speech at Harvard, like he has seen and been everywhere. And it's hectic, but I have never felt like my career or my ambitions or my dreams have been put on hold for my kids. So I'm so excited for you and Adam, because I have a feeling it's going to be the same way for the both of you. Oh, I hope so. And thank you for sharing that. It's really empowering to hear that. It definitely will be. Michelle, tell me how speaking started as one of your fears, but now has become your job. <sighs> that is a great question, because I have to tell you that I was terrified of public speaking, and I think everybody can relate to this. Before you actually do it, often it's just so scary. You don't know what people will think of you uh, when you're on stage and when you're sharing a message. And so it took me years to feel comfortable on stage. And the only reason why I decided to continue doing it is because of the impact that it was having and also the way that it made me feel when I was on stage. So the scariest part of public speaking is before going on stage. That's the worst part. You literally want to die. You're like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I here? I personally started yawning and I researched this. Apparently my brain thinks that I don't have oxygen because I'm telling my brain that I'm oh, here. So funny. Yeah. And I start yawning and yawning and my husband's like, please stop yawning. People think you're <laughs> bored. <laughs> and um, so it's the worst part and it is still scary today. Not as much just before but then when I'm on stage and I say something and I see people nod I see people cry I see people laugh I see people stand and and clap and do standing ovations and that tells me that what I'm doing has a huge impact on their lives and then I get to hear their their stories like months later and even years later and they come to me and thank me for being the what sparked their courage to start their own business or start a new life or move to a different country or so many things that people have been able to do because I shared my personal story. And so it's just, uh, it goes beyond a fear and it becomes your purpose. And when you have a purpose, yeah. fear can't get in the way, really. It's true. And it, it also shows you how like fear opens you up to what you're supposed to do. Like you are meant to be on the stage. You were meant to inspire people. And if you let your fear kind of stand in the way of your future, you never would have been able to do that. So that's really powerful. Well, thank you so much. It was so wonderful talking with you. And I love your book and your message is so powerful and so important. You know, what I love about the book is like, it's really easy to digest and like to take with you and to implement. And, you know, people need tools and strategies and it's, it's all here. So um, it was so great talking to you. I'm so happy to be talking to you too. And I have to tell you that for the first year or maybe two years, I had a slide on my presentation uh, talking about the importance of being brave, not perfect with your name on it. <sighs> Oh my God, I never even knew that. That's so, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So I've been following you for a long time also, very inspired by you. And this is an honor to be talking here today. Well, thank you. <laughs> We're happy to promote you to everybody. And um, we wish you all the biggest amount of success. Uh, thank you, Reshma. That was Michelle Polaire, author of Hello Fears, Crush Your Comfort Zone and Become who you're meant to be. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure to subscribe to Brave Not Perfect Podcast. 
And I would so, so appreciate it if you told a friend about it or shared Brave Not Perfect on social media. That really helps get the word out. Take care of yourself and I'll see you in two weeks. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone co-produced this episode. And of course, we couldn't make Brave Not Perfect without unwavering support from Deborah Singer and Rush Misajani. 